Hi everyone, I'm your host Engie and welcome to the 32nd episode of the podcast. Sounds about right? Audiobooks help us understand the world. On this episode, I was joined by Jordan E. Taylor, author of the book Misinformation Nation, Foreign News and the Politics of Truth in Revolutionary America. Fake news is not new. Just like millions of Americans today, the revolutionaries of the 18th century worried that they were entering a post-truth era. Their fears, however, were not fixated on social media or clickbait, but rather on people's increasing reliance on reading news gathered by foreign newspapers. In the book, Jordan reveals how foreign news defined the boundaries of American politics and ultimately drove colonists to revolt against Britain and create a new nation. It was great discussing the book with Jordan. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Now, Jordan, you analysed thousands of newspapers in the process of working on this book. What was a glaring thing you'd say that you came to notice after doing this? The newspapers that I looked at for this book, which are from the late 18th century, the thing that's most astonishing to me, I think, is how much they were focused on things that today we would find completely uninteresting. If you open up a newspaper from the 1790s, let's say, the first decade of the history of the United States, a newspaper from New York, from Philadelphia, from Boston, somewhere like that, what you'll find is maybe a few essays talking about uh, local politics. Maybe you'll find like a few paragraphs of news describing local conditions, but mostly it's about debates in Parliament in London or the National Assembly in France or these minute, excruciatingly detailed accounts of the movements of troops in France or in you know Switzerland or something like that. Things that a lot of Americans today would struggle to be interested in, at least in that level of detail. And so I was really astounded when I started to look at these early American newspapers and the extent to which they were, they were just obsessed with all of the details about what was happening in the world around them and completely unfocused, really, I would say, on local events. And there was an interesting point you made early on in the book, and that is that the slow globalization of the early modern world ensured that all knowledge about events abroad was tenuous and uncertain. How was news being circulated at the time? Yeah, so the way that it worked essentially was that if you were a newspaper printer, you took what you could get. And that meant that if someone happened to share a letter with you, you might extract a paragraph from that. If a ship arrived that brought with it copies of a newspaper that was printed wherever it happened to leave from, that was great because you could just lift wholesale sections of that newspaper and reprint it without without any credit, by the way. And you would also just share rumors as you came across them. So if someone arrived on a ship or arrived just in town, really from anywhere, people would ask, you know, what's the news? What's going on? Where you came from? And that would circulate around town and eventually it would make its way to a newspaper printer where it was sort of recorded for us to find out about. So those were the three main ways that news traveled. And none of them were very good by our standards because Rumors are rumors, right? It's always going to be 
uh, pretty limited way of accessing the truth about reality. Letters are only as good as the person who's writing the letter. Sometimes that was good. Sometimes that was a valuable source of information. Other times it really wasn't. And the way that they were shared in newspapers in particular, you could sort of see it was difficult for readers to tell how trustworthy someone who wrote it was because it would just be say something like, you know, uh, this letter was written by a gentleman in London. And it's like, which gentleman? What, what's his view of things, right? And then because the newspapers that are being extracted from are themselves gathering news in this kind of chaotic and decentralized way without any kind of professional standards or ethical standards of what we would today call journalism, reprinting from another newspaper was a gamble uh, at best. So that's why the process of trying to understand the world for people, in my book, I focus on early America, but really anyone in the early modern world, it was very difficult. And any time that you were trying to just gather basic facts about reality, you were really only speaking in probabilities. There was a part in the book in the earlier chapters where you said of the phrase how knowledge is power, but how also power can control knowledge, which I thought was brilliant. Could you elaborate on how power was controlling knowledge at the time, considering how things were? Yeah, absolutely. So it won't come as any surprise, right, that the people who were most involved in deciding what news was shared, what was distributed, what news was true, what was false, those tended to be elite white men, right? Enslaved people who made up a substantial portion of the population of early America at this time were intentionally excluded from processes of gathering news, right? In, in large part because there were fears that certain kinds of news could incite revolts. Um, women were typically not participants or members of professions that put them in situations where they were mediating news. There were exceptions, of course, in both of those cases. And so a lot of the folks who are deeply involved in the distribution of news and determining what's true are political leaders, colonial governors, and when the United States comes to being local political officials, national political officials, newspaper printers who were typically relatively prosperous, relatively well-educated white men, and merchants, pretty much the definition of elite white men at the time at least. And so the folks who are making decisions about what is true, about what is rumor and what is knowledge are very often the folks who are already in positions of power. And so they get to decide, right, if an event that they hear about is a revolution or if it's a slave revolt. And so one of my chapters gets into this in depth in relation to the Haitian revolution and some other, I would say, revolutionary events in the Caribbean where the white men, the people who are determining what is important news, mostly look at the news that arrives about things happening in St. Vincent or Saint-Domingue or Grenada or, or wherever. And they mostly say, well, this is, this is just some local disturbance 
or it's just uh, the French army kind of rabble-rousing, and they don't consider for a moment the possibility that this is a revolution on the scale of the American Revolution or the French Revolution, and that it has important ideological content, that it matters, that it's an expression of oppressed people challenging unjust systems of power. And so that's just one example of the ways that the knowledge is created by, by folks in positions of power. And because there was no concept of journalism back then, how did people go about judging whether the news they were receiving was real? That's a good question. So, you know, it's funny because we obviously have this concept of journalism now. We have some folks who are committed to professional standards of uh, journalistic ethics, but we, we still kind of fall into the, some of the same traps as, as people from the 18th century, which is that people tended to trust news that lined up with prior conceptions of how the world works as we do today, right? And so news that aligned with your intuition, news that confirmed what you already think about the world or that supports your particular politics was often judged to be more true than news that that challenged you in some way. So during the 1770s and the lead up to the American Revolution, the Patriot Faction, the group of political leaders and, and followers, I guess, as well, who pushed the United States toward independence, they pretty much discarded any news from London that tended to sort of push against their preferred narratives about the world. And that, I think, was one of the things that sort of radicalized them, that convinced them that the British government was was evil, like this, this villainous cabal of folks who were out to get them. You know, it's not too much, I think, to say that they were conspiracy theorists in a, in a significant way. And in part, they come to this conclusion because they're, they're making these highly politicized judgments based on their own intuitions rather than based on sort of a rigorous, what some people today might call objective engagement with, with evidence. Mm. And did the fight for independence coincide with the explosion of newspapers that happened in the late 1700s? Yeah, the one of the big consequences of the American Revolution that I think nobody really thinks about when they think about American independence is that Americans suddenly start trading with people all around the world. To some extent, this was happening before, but they were members of the British Empire, and you're really only supposed to trade within your empire in the 18th century. But you know, obviously there's smuggling and things like that. But with American independence, Americans start to engage more with the French world, with the Dutch world, with other you know parts of the Caribbean beyond British islands like Jamaica. And the result is that the ships that are going out to these different kinds of places bring back with them newspapers, letters, rumors. That really affects how they understand the world, right? So when the French Revolution comes along, for instance, they are not only engaging with accounts of events in, in France and Paris from the perspective, the rather skeptical perspective of like London newspapers, but they're also seeing things from the perspective of the French themselves. And so this is really unusual in the early modern world for there to be this kind of contradictory, splintered view of the world. If you look at how people in you know Canada this, this part of the British Empire, very close to the United States, 
we're we're gathering information after American independence. It's very much like how Americans did before the revolution, and it leads to a very different picture of world events in the 1780s and 1790s. So Americans argue a lot about the French Revolution. They disagree about very basic facts about what's happening, about just details about like the execution of monarchs or what a particular document says or what a particular French politician said in a debate, things like that in British Canada. There's not much argument. It's, it's you know, you might say univocal. It's one narrative that's being pushed. And uh, even though there are some people who are skeptical of it because they're descendants of French colonists generations earlier, there's not much disagreement after a certain point about, about what's actually happening. And so that's one way that American independence has a really important, I think, effect on uh, the way that people gather information about the world. One thing I did notice is that after independence, many Americans seemed as though French news was like a threat to their sovereignty. That's one thing I learned from your book. Why was this, would you say? There's a complicated, like, sort of interplay of politics and news here, right? And as France becomes sort of a boogeyman in the late 1790s to a lot of Americans, we could probably spend an hour talking about why that was. But it's got a lot to do with a breakdown of Franco-American relations and some diplomatic missteps in the 1790s. But as that starts to happen, some Americans start to think that France is paying for people to spread its news, that it has compromised some of the important news mediators in the United States, some newspaper printers, some politicians. And the idea is that France is aiming to conquer the United States. And it's starting by sort of preparing the way with what we might today call sort of propaganda, right? They think that this is exactly what happened with the expansion of France throughout Europe, beginning in the mid-1790s and sort of continuing with Napoleon uh, Bonaparte's successful conquests you know, toward the end of the, of the 1790s. They think that Basically, the French were so successful at preparing the way for their armies with these pamphlets and newspapers and propagandists that they'll try the same thing in the United States. And so by the end of the 1790s, a lot of folks are very concerned that any piece of news from France, any account that seems to set the French Republic in a positive light, is actually sort of, it's a piece of fake news, right, that the French government has concocted in order to create sympathizers who will allow their armies to conquer the United States without without opposition. It's worth saying that this is silly. <laughs> France uh, had bigger things on its plate than conquering the United States. But so that was sort of part of the same sort of paranoid viewpoint that you get when you have this highly politicized view of news. And it seemed as though France and its relations was a constant theme throughout the book as well, because the Americans were very careful of how the Haitian revolution was being reported, as they didn't want to encourage slave revolts within their own land, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So the thing to remember at this time is, is France is the most important, largest nation in Europe in a lot of ways. 
and Saint-Domingue, the French colony that becomes Haiti, that, that sees the Haitian Revolution play out, is the most important, most economically prosperous colony in the New World, really, uh, certainly in the Caribbean. And so these two events in the 1790s are sort of the equivalent of the 2020 election, the war in the Ukraine, the Super Bowl, everything wrapped up into one. It's the most important news event of the decade, and it's not even close. And so it's reported the way that people try to understand this is is hugely important to most people, not just politically engaged people, not just sort of politicians and, and journalists, but a lot of ordinary people too. And one of the reasons is exactly what you alluded to, the fear that this will have political consequences for upsetting the order of things in the United States. And you have examples like James Callender, who is a newspaper printer based in Virginia. Callender is famous today because he he was an ally of Thomas Jefferson, but sort of turned against Thomas Jefferson and actually exposed the interracial relationship that Thomas Jefferson had with Sally Hemings. But one place where James Callender pops up in my book is he has this incredibly forthright editorial in, I want to say 1801, I could, I could be getting the date wrong, when Toussaint Louverture and his government in Saint-Domingue create a new constitution. He says, he sees that a, a bunch of other newspaper printers are sharing this. They've gone to the effort to translate it into English and they're sharing it in their pages. And he says, what are you doing? He calls it, first of all, a piece of trash, which, which tells you exactly where he stands. But he, he says, what's going to happen if you're sharing news like this is it's going to upset the racial order. You might see Saint-Domingue, you know, what they would refer to quite intentionally as the horrors of Saint-Domingue coming to the shores of the United States and particularly the South. And so that's just one example, right? And, and most people are not quite so clear about their decisions to omit certain kinds of news as Calendar so helpfully was for us. But you also have lots of examples of people suggesting there is a direct relationship between the news that arrives and sort of the political fortunes of one party or the other. And so there is this perception that would be, I think, familiar to us today, that there's this direct relationship between politics and society on the one hand, and the information that we encounter on the other. There's a great newspaper essay from the National Gazette in Philadelphia from, I think, April 20th, 1793, that says that the mercury of republicanism, Republican Party, they're referring to, rises and falls with the fortunes of French arms. In other words, when France's armies are doing well, the Republican Party in Philadelphia is doing well. And when French armies are not doing well, you know, maybe things aren't looking so good for the Republican Party in Philadelphia. And so I still find that quite astounding that people are commenting on this and are aware of the ways that they are participants in this network of information. They're very self-aware of that, and they're very concerned about it. Another thing I wanted to ask you more personally is, 
as I said before we started recording, the book is extremely comprehensive. You managed to chronicle the recording of news before independence, up until the point of and after as well. So I wanted to ask you, was there any perspective of yours which changed whilst you wrote the book or when you researched for the book? Yeah, I think that a lot of things sort of became clear to me as a result of thinking through this. I mean, one of the nice things about history sometimes is that it can sort of offer an escape from the present. But in my case, I think it was a way of thinking through the present by looking at the past, right? And one of the things that was clear to me (laughs) is that after doing all of this research and all of this thinking, while we have a lot of problems with the way that media and information ecosystem work in the 21st century, they had a lot more problems in the 18th century, right? At least we have people whose job it is to investigate things and to show their work, to provide evidence, to do some fact-checking, right? At least we have shared standards of evidence. We have really an extraordinary number of researchers, of, of scientists, of academics, just people whose entire lives are devoted to a really rigorous examination of evidence and just trying to understand what's true in the world. Almost none of that exists in the 18th century. And I think we take it for granted way too much. I think that it's really extraordinary, the world we live in, and the the number of opportunities that are available to us for trying to understand the world uh, just completely uh, exceeds by many orders of magnitude what was available to folks in the 18th century. And so I think we have to do a better job in the 21st century of, of sort of appreciating that. I don't just mean feeling good about ourselves. I mean, rewarding folks who are engaged in that pursuit of truth and are doing it in a responsible and rigorous way, rewarding them by paying journalists money, (laughs) by subscribing to really good news outlets, by funding institutions that are engaged in research work, things like that. So that's my epilogue goes in a lot of directions, but that's one of the places that I leave the book at just the importance of recognizing how far we've come from the 18th century, even though sometimes it doesn't feel like that far, but really we have, we really have. It's, it's really something to, to be in awe of. Do you know, it's funny you mentioned an epilogue because my last question actually was, um, what was the idea of Tangi's faithful mirror and what lessons can be learned from this? Well, I mean, I'll just tie that into the anecdote that is at the beginning of that epilogue. Um, so Claude Corentin Tanguy de la Boissier, I'm sure I've mangled that, but he was a newspaper printer. He had been a printer in Saint-Domingue and was sort of, he was a white man. He was chased out of Saint-Domingue by the French Revolution and he came to Philadelphia. He set up a newspaper called the American Star, which only ran for... I want to say like 40 issues. It wasn't a very long lasting newspaper, but he published it essentially to keep track of what was going on in the Haitian revolution and the French revolution. And he was very anti-revolutionary as you, as you would imagine being chased out of Saint-Domingue. And he, in the prospectus, so sort of the kind of the first issue of his paper, he describes what a newspaper should be. He says it should be a faithful mirror of the world, right, of events around us. And I think that sort of echoes the aspirations that a lot of people 
have for newspapers today, or at least the expectations that it, it should be objective, right? That it should be just a mirror of, of what's going on in the world. And this was in his prospectus. This was before he had really started the business of trying to keep up with all of this news. And then a few issues later, he describes how difficult it is actually to do that. So he's describing this rumor that's floating around town and he can't really pin it down. And he says, you know, news that looks one way one on a Wednesday looks completely different on a Thursday, right? And he says, really, it's just a matter of sort of chasing echoes. And so this dynamic where we have these expectations for what news should look like, we expect it should be a mirror but in reality, it's always just a bunch of echoes. I found that really compelling as a way of thinking through both the challenges that people had in the 18th century and the challenges that, that we have today. Because the folks who are incredibly critical of the news media, uh, who expect it to just be a faithful mirror of events, I think that if they sat in the position of journalists today, they would find that it's pretty hard to chase all of those echoes <laughs> and even people who are committed to truth and who are a little bit less, let's say ideological to put it uh, lightly, uh, less ideological than, than Tangi was people who, who come to things with the best of intentions might find that, that that faithful mirror is a pretty hard thing to attain. That was Jordan E. Taylor, author of the book The Misinformation Nation, Foreign News and the Politics of Truth in Revolutionary America. The book and audiobook is available now, which I do recommend you to pick up and read or to give a listen to. A big thank you to Jordan for coming onto the podcast, and thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate the podcast. And check out some of the previous ones if you haven't done already. And until then, I'll catch you on the next.